I'm Keaton Fletcher, an assistant professor of industrial organizational psychology at Colorado State University, and this is Healthy Work. Welcome back. I am so excited to be joined by our guest today. She's the author of the new book, Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It, that is officially released today as we're recording. And she's also the director of the Healthy Work Lab, which is unaffiliated with this podcast, but makes having her on here feel almost like it's destiny or something. So let me get out of the way so you can introduce yourself. Hi, uh, Keaton. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Melissa Clark. I'm an associate a professor of industrial organizational psychology at the University of Georgia, also the associate department head there. As you mentioned, I run the Healthy Work Lab. My research, just broadly speaking, touches on anything related to employee well-being. And so it was really fun to write this book, which was extremely different than our normal publishing. Yeah, I could imagine. It seems like just much more conversational and accessible than those academic articles that we're constantly writing. Mm -hmm. Um, It was fun to read. But thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book. And congratulations again on today being the release day for it. This podcast will air afterwards, but today's the day. And if you'll indulge me, I would love to rave about it for a second because I I meant to only skim it uh, in preparation for this talk. I was going to protect my time and you know then read it leisurely in the future, but I genuinely could not put it down once I started. I think it's beautifully written and it's very clearly thoroughly researched and cited. And it includes a who's who of occupational health psychologists, which is very cool, and some really helpful exercises and assessments. And I genuinely believe that I don't think it's an overstatement to say that it's a life-changing book. As I was reading it last night, at midnight, having worked a full day and listened to work-related podcasts at the gym, that it dawned on me. I was like, maybe I'm a workaholic. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> with that, um, I would love to dive into all things workaholism and your book. Is that all right? Yeah. And thank you so much. Uh, I'm flattered. That was the most amazing praise. So it really means a lot, especially coming from you as a stellar researcher yourself. So I really appreciate that. Well, thanks so much. We'll start with a softball question for you. Hopefully it's softball is what is workaholism and what is it not? Okay. So yes, great question. So the way I conceptualize workaholism is, and I'm gonna try not to sound too academic, is multidimensional. So it's not just long work hours, although that's the most obvious dimension that we tend to work more than others, bring work with us everywhere, that kind of thing. But it's driven by a type of motivation called introjected motivation. So this is working because you feel like you ought to work, because you feel like you should be. It's almost like this pit in your stomach is the way I describe it. It's the way I feel it, at least. And along with that, feeling negative emotions if you're not working, kind of anxious or unsettled, sometimes guilty, sometimes even frustrated when people interrupt you and you're you have to take a break from working that kind of thing and finally it's the cognitive component of your you're thinking about work all the time you might wake up in the middle of night thinking about work and you can't shut it off when you're supposed to be enjoying something else or spending time with your family so it's multifaceted it's not just long work hours they're actually just moderately correlated with each other And it's also not work engagement. So as many of you know, they're two different constructs. And, you know, you can, to varying degrees, uh, have workaholic tendencies and 
be an engaged worker and love your work. I relate to that. But the research does show that work engagement tends to be driven by intrinsic motivation. So enjoying your work, loving your work. And that is different from what I was talking about with workaholism, with that introjected motivation. So that's one of the distinguishing features. There are some overlaps for sure. Um, And oftentimes, extreme levels of work engagement can kind of bleed into some of these workaholic tendencies. And so it's a fine line. Yeah, I the part of the book where you talked about work engagement versus workaholism and said, you know, you can be sort of high in both, but there are these two different aspects. It's like the push and the pull changed how I thought about everything because I had always thought like I enjoy my work. I work so much because it brings me, you know, pleasure. But then when I thought about the example of like feeling frustrated when other people like quote unquote, like interrupt you, I reflected on, you know, times when I wanted to play with my kids. But then at the same time, I was like, oh, I'd much rather be working. Like if they could just go play by themselves, this would be a lot easier. And that moment just dawned on me like, oh, I it's it's both just because like, I like what I do doesn't mean I'm not, you know, feeling that external push to be doing this. Yeah. In your book, you describe and bust some myths about workaholism. Um, what would you say the biggest myth you tackle is and why is it wrong? I like to bust the myth that workaholics are more productive. So, you know, for many reasons, the research is clear. A meta-analysis that I conducted a few years ago really didn't find a relationship at all between the two. But more than that, if you think about effective hours working versus actual hours working, the economist John Pinkhovel, he has a book called Diminishing Returns, where he talks about the law of diminishing returns, which means that at a certain point, we start to lose effective hours working, the more actual hours we are working. So like with anything, it's like too much of a good thing, or it's really not a good thing at all. But somebody who's working 70 hours is no more productive than someone working 55 hours, according to his model. And this is because we're more tired after we've been working a long time. You know, I think of my energy levels at the beginning of the day compared to the end of the day, and I notice a big difference. And, you know, we know from all the rest and recovery literature that we need that downtime. We need that recovery. And if we could keep on pushing ourselves with no breaks and no time for rest and recovery, our productivity is going to decrease. And so just because someone is spending all this time working or all this energy towards work, it doesn't mean it's productive energy. And workaholism is shown to predict decrease work engagement over time too. So I like to bust that myth because I think that's just so pervasive. We we tend to reward long hours and see that over and over again in companies and organizations that have this hard driving 24-7 always on culture. Those are the people that get promoted, the ones that are putting in the long hours and staying late at work. Well, guess what? You know, researchers have found that managers can't even tell the difference between those who are workaholics and those who pretend to be workaholics. You know, fascinating research by Aaron Reed and summarized in HBR. So sorry, that was a way long-winded answer of saying that's the myth I like to bust. I think that is by far the most powerful myth because even going into this book, I was like, yeah, but at least it comes with the benefit of you get more done, right? I was sort of raised with this perspective of you can sleep when you're dead Mm -hmm. and you put in the hours now and you reap the benefits 20, 30 years from now. And I suppose like corporate structure might 
give you the benefits of you get the promotions, but you're not actually doing more. And so that was really eye-opening. I'm really glad that's the myth that you also felt was the biggest one. In your chapter about enabling workaholism, you describe the work devotion schema, saying that it has become so embedded in our society that we no longer question it and we unthinkingly pass it on. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what the work devotion schema is and how it enables workaholism? Yeah, so I really love the work of sociologist Mary Blair Loy, and she talks about this work devotion schema, the concept of the ideal worker. So the person who prioritizes the interests of their employer above their own, they're putting in the long hours, they're always available to people all the time. And so that's kind of the ideal worker. And the prototype in our head is still kind of the white male worker. And this notion of the ideal worker and the work devotion schema continues to be so prevalent in organizations. You know, I was talking with Lacey Barber, fellow IO psychologist, and she said to me, you know, it's just so culturally okay when someone says, how are you? And your response is, oh, I'm busy. I'm swamped. I'm overloaded. It's almost just like the standard default, but it's much less acceptable to say things like, oh, I just spent all this time during the workday taking care of the family obligations. Like you'd never say that, especially if you're a woman, like God forbid we prioritize family sometimes. But so we all use this busy excuse as like a standard way of describing how we are. And maybe we legitimately are busy all the time, but that's also another problem, right? Absolutely. Reading that section reminded me of like two things. One was being pre-med in undergrad. There was this culture of, of like who's working more, who is putting in more hours, who is in more classes who's who's got it harder who's busier and like everyone would wear that as like a badge of honor and pride and you'd complain but that complaining was really showing off and I think that like resonated I I saw echoes of that in what you were talking about in organizations and and corporations so it obviously starts so much sooner right it starts in in school and then there's another anecdote of like I had been talking to someone and they were talking about a workplace. It was an awards ceremony that their work was hosting. And they had an employee who couldn't make it because they had family obligations. And then that employee not making it to the awards ceremony, where they weren't winning an award, was like viewed as them not being uh, devoted to the company, that they weren't a good worker. Do both of those fit in with uh, that schema? Yeah, absolutely. You know, company culture, you know, celebrates and rewards exactly what you're talking about. And researchers Callie Ressler and Jody Thompson, they call this a sludge. So it's basically negative comments about people that serve to reinforce these old ideas about how how work gets done and the status quo. So that sounds like exactly what you're talking about with this award ceremony and how they're kind of making these comments, these side comments, that sludge, as they call it. Again, it's just signaling to employees, like, don't do this, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Shifting gears a little bit, one of the things I love most about your book is the recognition that workaholism is a cultural and systemic issue. So I guess it's really not shifting gears that much. It's it's very much directly tied (laughs) to that notion of sludge, but even bigger than just the culture within a company. Like, for example, you say, quote, in the capitalist economy, it's hard to ratchet down an overworked culture, particularly in a publicly held organization where shareholders are concerned about maximizing profits and increasing stock prices. And I, I, I was shook. I love that. But, you know, we still 
have to do something. If I recognize that I myself am a workaholic and you provide a lot of um, resources and tips and suggestions on what to do if you're thinking about workaholism in your own life. And so could you maybe highlight uh, one or two strategies that you talk about in your book that individuals can take if they feel like they have workaholic tendencies? Sure. Yeah. So I talk about some individual strategies and then I talk about more like leadership strategies. But as you mentioned, I also talk about the fact that this is all in a an overarching culture in a society where this is what's valued and this is what's rewarded. So, you know, I think in some organizations, it's so pervasive that even just little changes can make a big difference. So I'd like to say that you kind of have to look at the situation to kind of evaluate. You can't just go from working seven days a week to a four day work week, for example, although that's a a really good model that I absolutely love. But going back to actionable things that we can change, you know, again, hearkening back to another um, conversation I had with Lacey Barber, uh, she talks about ways that supervisors can help facilitate employees' rest and recovery. And so it goes hand in hand with this discussion. One of the things that supervisors can do is just role model, right? So instead of saying, take your vacation time and take this time for your family, actually do it yourself as a leader. If you're not role modeling, people are going to see that and they're going to realize, oh, do as they do, not as they say. So that's one thing. Another thing is to look at your communication patterns with the people you work with. And this can be really difficult in a culture that this is the norm across the whole company. You know, Leslie Perlow talks about the cycle of responsiveness and that because of technology, it's easier for us to check our emails that people know they're going to get a hold of us. And then we feel pressured to respond. And then they come to expect that response. And it's just this cycle. So finding points that you can kind of cut those ties to break that responsiveness cycle. So one of the strategies could be schedule send your emails. Again, this is about role modeling, right? So instead of sending that email at 7 p.m. or on the weekend, schedule that for Monday morning. So it's in their inbox actually during the workday so they don't feel pressure to respond. And little things like that I think can make a big difference and we can kind of work to make changes within our work teams within like the broader company that we should also be making broader changes as well, but uh, they have to go kind of hand in hand. Absolutely. I, uh, reading that section too, I like self-reflected because I thought I was doing so well as, you know, a supervisor of graduate students where we have a conversation when they first come in and I say, I work weird hours because I have small kids, so don't feel pressure. Mm-hmm. I have it in my email. I've got the email signature. And then you even like specifically call out the email signature. If you're like, that's not enough. And like this wording, we can do better. And I really had to reflect on, I think you called it status blindness of, I think, you know, I'm giving people leeway that they can work when it's appropriate for them. But because of that power differential, it's really the norms that I'm establishing are you work long hours like me or you work weird hours like me and I expect responses ahead of time. And so I had to do some self-reflection there. And if my grad students are listening, I'm so sorry. I'll do better. I promise. No, I mean, that shook me too. That was Lauren Kirkendall. And I really hadn't thought about it that way because Again, I see those email signatures too. And I'm like, oh, look at this. They're signaling you can respond wherever. But yeah, not realizing that others don't have the same amount of autonomy as as we do as individuals that are leaders and in more of a position of power. So that really 
struck me as well. And I thought that was just such a great suggestion. And so many of those just riddled throughout your book. I I couldn't go a page without highlighting something of, oh, there's an idea. Oh, there's something there. If we can zoom out a little bit, though, and talk about like more of the process of the book, you include a lot of stories and findings from interviews with people who've experienced workaholism firsthand or through a loved one, including your own story. Um, And I would just love if you could talk about the experience of talking to these people and getting their stories. What was it like? Wow. I mean, it was such an experience different than anything else, you know, we're as researchers, we're always arm's length from the participants, right? We're just looking at the aggregate data. And, you know, I've done some qualitative studies, but this was very different because I wasn't having to follow some standardized interview script or anything like that. So I reached out to Workaholics Anonymous, and I was so grateful that they shared information about the book to their members. And it is a real organization, A lot of people don't think it is. And so I connected with a lot of members of Workaholics Anonymous and spoke with many, many individuals about their very personal, raw stories of their lives and their struggles and how they've worked to make changes. And I mean, you name it. And it was so moving just to have these conversations. And so I really just loved that process. Um, And then just talking with individuals in industry, talking with other IO psychologists, it was so different than what I'm used to. It was hard to have this completely different style of researching and, and writing, but I really enjoyed it. It was just so much fun. And I think it just brings the data to life, right? It makes it sing in a way that, you know, our, our traditional academic papers don't. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear that personally, too, just going through that process was rewarding. But it's, it definitely comes through for your readers, too. I think that it's rewarding to read and see those firsthand accounts. And we'll include a link in the show notes to Workaholics Anonymous for people who are interested or concerned about their own workaholic tendencies. So, Last big question for you is, why do you do this work? Oh, it's me search, right? I think we, (laughs) a lot of us do that. And so I've struggled with workaholism my whole life and really didn't have a name for it when I was a kid, of course. But, you know, when I got into graduate school, it just inherently was so interesting to me. So then I started down the scholarly path of researching it and never looked back, really. It's just always been a central part of my research stream because I just really find it so fascinating and I can relate to it and I can kind of draw from my own personal experiences to inform my future research studies. So yeah, it's really just me search. So maybe selfishly just spending all my time trying to figure out myself. I don't know. (laughs) That's pretty much why I study it. Nice. And where can listeners find you if they want to know more about what you're doing, your research, your takes? They can check out my website. It's melissaclark.com, spelled M-A-L-I-S-S-A. Or they can um, hook up with me on LinkedIn or they can find me through UGA's website too. Great. And we'll make sure to include a link to buy your book, Never Not Working, Why the Always-On Culture is Bad for Business and How to Fix It from bookshop.org in the show notes. So listeners can also support their local bookstores while getting your amazing book uh, straight to their hands. Thank you so much for your time, Melissa. And thank you for, I think, this life-changing book. (laughs) Well, thank you. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. Bye. Healthy Work is a podcast written and produced by Keaton Fletcher and Mariana Arvon, mixed and edited by Keaton Fletcher, artwork by Keaton Fletcher, and our music is Zero Micro Song by Steve Combs. Please like us, follow us, and subscribe on whatever podcatching software you use, and leave a review in the iTunes store. It really does help get us out there.